Hello and welcome to Ear Read This. My name's Ash and today I'll be talking about Cock and Bull by Will Self. First cock and then bull, as the book is comprised of two separate stories. As you might expect if you've listened to my episodes on the golden ass and the breast, Cock and Bull is likewise concerned with bodily metamorphoses, and its hermaphroditic bent makes it only right that today we're getting two for the price of one. First, Cock, the story of Carol, a young housewife who grows a penis. Then, Bull, the story of John Bull, an amateur rugby player who grows a vagina on the back of his knee. Together, the two stories form, in the author's words, an elaborate joke about the failure of narrative. The title, Cock and Bull, is pushing one hand down your pants and pulling your leg with the other. Not only do we have the suggestion of eventful trousers, but also that of being bullshitted. These are stories that are a load of cobblers, cock and bull, or the French cock meaning stories that jump from situation to situation. Like others in the tradition such as Ovid's Metamorphoses, Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, and your dad's shaggy dog jokes, cock and bull stories are scatological, burlesque, subversive, and tricksy. Its narrators want to make you laugh, disgust you, and generally have you on. This book has been a personal favourite of mine since first reading it as a teenager and relishing all of its nastiness, at an age when everything seemed to revolve around observing with horror the repulsiveness of changing bodies, most of all your own. Certain unctuously unpleasant lines and passages have been glued onto my brain ever since. The unforgettably sour cream flesh of Beverly, the large and predatory lesbian from Leeds, Someone having sex the way that other people eat dry-roasted peanuts, compulsively in large quantities and with progressively less pleasure. Carol, exulting in the masturbatory possibilities of her newly acquired penis and coming in great cracking thermofaxed plashes of jism. Will Self is regularly criticised for including deliberately obtuse words in his work. Tom Shon, whose reviews of Self read like a panning shot of a stalker's bedroom wall, plastered with the full range of initially love-struck and gushing, then increasingly imitative and creepy, finally moody, rejected and murderous, has this to say somewhere in the vampish middle period. His language starts to resemble the standard-issue finger-pairing prose typical of callow male writers. This dinky and hypocritical epigram strikes a pose but says nothing. Will Self's prose, which can certainly be showy and baroque, always has ambitions higher than giving its author a manicure. Sean's embedded jibes that the failure of Self's prose has something to do with either his callousness or his maleness won't be hard to bat away either. I hope you leave this podcast convinced that Self is A, far from a callous writer, but one unusually concerned with the welfare of not only the reader, but fiction as a whole, and that his refusal to treat the former like a baby and the latter like a Lego set has been thoroughly misread. B, that self, while male, is testament to Cocteau's remark that all true artists are hermaphrodites, and shows that he is capable, even here in his early fiction, of demonstrating a range of sexual registers, not merely macho bravado and Wildean camp. It little matters that his characters in Cock and Bull are more like players in a farce. He demonstrates that he has done the sufficient thinking to mock them with accuracy and compassion. This goes a lot further than what can be said from what I think of as callow male writers who make sickly passes at you by loading their characters with as many likeable traits as they can Google. C. What I'd like most of all to do is to make a case for Self's manipulation of high style in order to make his point. As John Keenan has remarked, Self recognises that the most effective way to depict the ugliness and stupidity of human behaviour is in a prose of crystalline purity. But before we get to that, I'd like to discuss, in particular, the problem of using long words. Self's recent novel, Phone, was described as embuggeringly difficult. Not, alas, by an overstretched blogger, but depressingly, the Times Literary Supplement. 
Some of the embuggering is attributed to style, but more often than not, self-deployment of a word like proprioception when you're trying to keep your eyes on the road. People are oddly touchy about being presented with words that they don't know yet in literature, and react as if it's a personal affront. The first obvious point to make here is that literature is surely your first and best resource of discovering new words, and what agreeable conditions in which to do so, in private so you can try them out and roll them round your mouth before wearing them in public. More importantly than showing them off, you have a new tool at your disposal now, free of charge. Others might argue that encountering an unknown word takes them out of the text, sends them rolling their eyes at self-successes back to their dictionary, or prodding testily at the word on the screen to bring up its definition. Well, in response to this, I would first encourage you to seek out Will Self's thoughts, which seem to have changed over time about the problems and opportunities presented by digital texts and its effect on the psychology of reading. It's a favourite subject of his, so if you find lectures or interviews with him on YouTube, I'm sure it won't take you long to hit one with the relevant stuff. But to see an alien word as a barrier that needs to be dismantled before you proceed is to snooze your imagination. Just as encountering a scene or idea that's original, meeting an unknown word makes us guess at its importance, based on all sorts of clues that we've encountered in our prior reading. Being roughly as old as the book is, I had no idea what thermofaxing was before I read that sentence about Carol's ejaculation, but it doesn't detract from the effect. You get a sense of heat, a sense of pressure, and the sentence's internal cracking faxed and plashes swell to produce a sound like waves breaking against a rock, adding to the comic grandiosity of a character having a wank. There is also the fact that encountering words we don't know is very true to life. In Will Self's work, for every splatter of antediluvian logorrhea, there are also evo-sticks and lagers of Lamotte, all kinds of proper noun tat cluttering his characters' lives, not to mention a galaxy of medications. Being a hoarder of these for his whole career, to read Will Self is to read three decades of history through our junk, or to paraphrase a line from the Book of Dave, to be an archaeologist of the recent past. In short... Disliking literature for having words you haven't heard of is like sending your food back because it's too good for you. As we shall see, with Cock and Bull, Self makes the case for ambiguity, exploring exactly the kind of jumps across lived experience, space and time you have to make when you come across a word you don't know. Carol always felt, at some level, less of a woman when Dan was around. And so Cock plunges in, and we meet Carol, insipid and plain, and her future husband Dan, slight, sour, effete, and unsure of himself. Carol is studying sociology in Wales and having experimentally sapphic nights with Beverly, whose sweaty fiddlings and sour cream flesh are not quite doing it for her. Neither are, and here on page two of Cock is one of my favourite sentences of all time, the blind mole bumpings of the seven or so penises that had truffled up her thin thighs and she started going in for that sort of thing. Enter Dan. His and Carol's first coming together is exactly that. After a drunken bar crawl, they end up on a thin foam mattress, and despite Dan's inebriation and lack of talent, they simultaneously orgasm after three sandpapery strokes. Although Carol soon realises this was a fluke, a synaptic glitch, it has already had the effect of obscurely bonding her to Dan. She is 19 when they marry, and afterwards they move from Wales to Muswell Hill in North London. Their life together is dull. Dan works in consultancy, specialising in corporate identity, for all the good that will do him. Carol stays at home, cooks dinners and becomes steadily more frustrated at, among other things, Dan's method of suggesting sex, asking over the dinner table whether she minds him climbing on board later on. Self makes pointed reminders throughout that Carol and Dan are flat. When we first meet Carol, she is bored, 
dull and submissive, her defining characteristic, for now, being an obscure and unarticulated dissatisfaction. Dan is just as flat, a drunk and a bore. His stock responses, when anything more emotionally complex than treacly, gooey-goo love sentimentality and the good companionship of his hail-fellow well-met mates, keeps him firmly pasted to the ground, denying the well-intentioned fingernails of readers trying to prize him into life. He is laddish, chauvinistic, inarticulate, cowardly, emotionally undeveloped, and very, very dull. He fails to notice Carol's dissatisfaction and suspects nothing when Beverly turns up on the Muswell Hill doorstep, this time armed not only with that sour cream smell, was it sweat or worse, but also an ironwood dildo. Dan's drinking gets steadily, predictably worse. We discover, as if we needed to discover, that he secretly fears not being able to please women. Just to cap off this champion of the quotidian, he turns out to have a formidable mother, presumably responsible via her formidableness for Dan's inability to register emotions, and via her astonishing tubular caramel nylon legs for God knows what cocktail of sexual hang-ups. Dan's mother's legs, one felt, if cut into, would not bleed. They were somehow synthetic, plasticised. Poor Dan. If he didn't have a forelock, he'd be featureless enough to ski on. And even that tuft indicates submissiveness, as historically forelocks were tugged by persons of low standing as someone a bit swankier went by. Several descriptions of Carol render her physically flat as well. She has a narrow bosom, thin thighs, a waxy patina around her face as if she's actually becoming translucent, and most notably, an oddly collapsing aspect to her midriff, as if Carol were a card table in the process of being vertically folded for storage purposes. But even the dull and ignorant have their story. Because at first, Carol and Dan seem flatly well-matched, a real pair of drapes. The only hint of Carol packing something you could hold on to is her subtle but mysterious air of subterfuge. We get a confused idea of whether she is living or spectating her own life. We hear she has a spy's head for alcohol, and that when she and Dan marry, friends comment that it was like a policewoman finally nailing her suspect. However, after the visits of Lingam-wielding Beverly and Dan's nylon-wielding mother... Carol begins to behave in a strangely performative way when alone. Dan is drinking more and climbing on board less, having reached no satisfaction with him since the fateful night of the fluke, nor any from Beverly's probing digits and ironwood pummelings, Carol takes matters into her own hands. But it seems less like masturbation and more like seduction. Carol really goes to town on herself, putting on some music, a whiter shade of pale, staging for herself various playlets, enjoying the sight of herself in numerous mirrors and the contrast between her nakedness and the bland formality of the room. She doesn't so much behave as if she's in need of a voyeur as a packed auditorium. So much the better if her imaginings are as clichéd as her husband's insecurities. Carol wanks as if she's making a commercial for wanking. In luxurious close-up, we get a finger-eye view of Carol's genitalia, swooping down gullies and zooming through gashed loam. Carol takes herself for a spin and is showing off every wheel arch and rain-slicked bonnet until her hand alights on a new piece of gadgetry. This bump in the road is Carol's first transgression against flatness, the gristly frond she finds protruding from just underneath her clitoris. This little nodule will grow into the titular member, its growth transforming Carol's character and her behaviour. Willself has this to say about the importance of another book of transformations, Alice in Wonderland, and its relation to his own work. The text itself has always been with me, forming some of the fundamental antinomies that constitute my imagination. The juxtaposition of the quotidian and the fantastic, the transposition of irreconcilable elements, 
the distortion of scale is a means of renouncing the sensible in favour of the intelligible, and most importantly, abrupt transmogrification conceived of as integral to the human condition. In the lives of Carol and Dan, we have all these antinomies in play, and he uses them to bring into focus his real concerns, which lie, as M. Hunter Hayes puts it, in its blend of narrative quandaries and the issues surrounding gender construction, in addition to the problems concerning interpretation that these facets present. Our first encounter with gender politics comes courtesy of Beverly, who is coaching Carol in neat tags of feminist jargon amid an atmosphere of student radicalism. Self has said that one of his motivations for writing the book was his rage with fem- the feminist argument that all men are rapists by virtue of possessing the requisite weapon. It is the jargon that enrages him, the blinkered neatness of those tags. Like the poet Stevie Smith, Self is against the flag wavers of both sexes. He ridicules campus jargon by taking it at its word. In Cock, a character will indeed become a rapist by virtue of possessing the requisite weapon. What does that look like? What happens then? And how does everyone else make sense of it? Well, to start off with, for that perspective to be viable, the body must triumph over the mind. Carol must think with her penis, becoming in the process as flat and crass as cubicle graffiti. Characters who are crass and flat can appear on film and be adored for their iconic moustache or music cue. Cinema can absorb a mannequin or two, burlesquing as a character, and not come off too badly desecrated. But novels are where we go to commune with a consciousness. The vehicle of that is often characters, but really any relating we do is with the author. Novels, if they can conjure nothing of an inner life, might as well be telly. And so the willful negation of Carol's, whose already meagre character is hijacked and jacked off with by an upstart penis, feels initially sacrilegious. What we get instead of a character with an inner life is an automaton, set in motion by a very particular lever. The effect is creepy. Carol is given centrality and the significance of being a heroine, yet goes about her way like a living doll in a world of other hollow people. Dan and his drinking friends, Gary, Barry, Jerry and Derry, and Dave 1, so-called to distinguish him from the later Dave 2. The blind mole reader, truffling around for anyone to relate to, will be warded off as self warns again and again. Identify with these marionettes at your peril. The characters might be dead inside, but cock itself is far from bloodless. Still to come is a surprise narrator, but to make up for the personality vacuums of Carol and Dan, and what domestic, handheld and low-powered hoovers they are, Self's prose is lavish, mischievous, funny, arch, pun-laden and grotesque. Despite all the nastiness and humiliation meted out to various characters, one's response to Cock is one of grateful relief, like the release you experience when you first find someone you can talk frankly to about the squalid awfulness of being in your body. For all some complain about his excesses, Self is an adept plotter. Anyone whinnying on about style over substance must be challenged to identify a single sentence in Cock that doesn't thicken the plot or harden our grip on Carol. Self wastes nothing in his hundred or so pages. Cock might lack girth, but it makes every inch count. One of the things a brief format allows is for Self to demonstrate how marionette characters can perform all kinds of functions without us getting exhausted of them. In Cock, wind-up Carol demonstrates the narrow sort of humour necessary for cod philosophies to be accurate. But here, as elsewhere when authors attempt something similar, more often than not, they come in for misguided attacks from critics who need to suckle on something a bit more relatable. Despite having created Carol, Self is accused of letting her down. Natasha Walter, writing in the TLS, despairs that Self thinks as little of his readers as he does of his protagonists implying that if only a more amiable and considerate novelist had been flown in to hurl the frenzied self away from his desk and treat Carol right. Walter and other reviewers such as Anthony Quinn have opened Cock and Bull expecting to make friends with nice people whilst reading A Meditation on Gender Politics. 
Horrified instead to find it a repellent party turn and lacking the correct equipment to engage with the text at all, they sink to speculating at the mental health and childishness of its author. This leads them from criticism to hypocrisy, as when Walter, almost in the same sentence, accuses self of condescension and decries his work as a minor disaster. This reopens an argument that's featured already on the podcast, that of the godliness of authorship. Allah Akbar, you understand, says the narrator of Cock, I am a man of God, I speak the truth, God's truth, there is no God but God. Sadly, it is a truth universally acknowledged that characters must be relatable that we must sympathise for them, project ourselves onto them, and find them, quote, three-dimensional. When an author denies a reader this, they're invariably accused of arrogance, snobbery, and, well, being a cock. The view of Nabokov, that his characters were galley slaves, who tremble as he passed them by, is taken to be much more arrogant than that of the author, who, with shrugs and smiles, describes as best as words can allow him the magical process of characters appearing, laying a hand on his shoulder, and telling them his story. To really go along with this, you must face up to the following notions. One, that authors are not in control of their imaginations, but are merely the amanuensis of some higher power or plane. Let's call it where ideas come from. And two, that this power or plane is accessible to all, felt in the blood like a sense of heaven. For how otherwise could non-authors intuit that something was being betrayed if they assert a Nabokovian view? Self is master of his own domain, which is a pretty humble brag. But he is also aware of the limits of his control. The structure of fiction cannot account for the anomalies of life and also the many possible ways in which he can be misconstrued. To return to M. Hunter Hayes, this is where Self's critiques of gender construction and narrative overlap. The gender dogma he describes depends on dirty, messy human beings behaving like the flat automata in bad fiction. It doesn't account for the kind of synaptic glitches that Carol and Dan experience on a thin foam mattress. As Carol learns the vocabulary of this cod philosophy, she begins to understand that this world was one of potentially unambiguous satisfaction, sexual or otherwise. Now that doesn't sound much like most sexual histories, does it? Full of errant desire, disappointment and incongruous disgust. It's in any ideology's best interest to eliminate ambiguity. For Beverly's cod philosophy to be applicable, female bodies and male bodies need to obey distinctly different set rules. In her worldview, the female body is incredible and the male static and lifeless. And the world of cheap fiction depends on characters, whether male or female, to behave similarly and be narrowed and therefore knowable. These are the first lines of a chapter called It, which I will leave it to you to decide whether or not is coincidental. There are those people in the world whose lives really are as flat as those of characters in a slight fiction. You know the kind of thing, bound in light blue cloth and picked up for 25p from a cardboard box outside a charity shop. When you get on the bus and start to read a few pages, you are struck immediately by the leaden feel of the characterisations. You chuck it to one side, and with it go Dan and Carol. And with them go other hallmarks of mass-market fiction. One failure of narrative is its dependency on having a climax, a resolution, and even, God forbid, a moral. From the moment Carol discovers her grisly frond, we have a sense of how cock will come to a head, and are anticipating with repulsion or relish a pretty nasty conclusion. The first few pages of Cock seem to be written in the third person. However, early on the story jerks to a standstill and we are made aware that this repellent story is in fact being told to the real narrator, a young man on a train. Next to him has settled the Don, who has climbed on board at Oxford and sat opposite the narrator, before launching into the tale of Carol and Dan like an ersatz, ancient mariner. It doesn't take a very acute observer, the narrator says, to tear away the moulded panels of the Don's accent in order to reveal the very chassis of his diction revealing years of elocution lessons. The pause in the narrative is due to the Don breaking off in his story, and for the first time, sitting in silence. Even though irritated by the Don story in its early stages, 
pre-frond, the narrator reacts to Don breaking off with encouragement. I don't know why. I have no explanation for what I did next. I certainly had no liking for the Don story, but perhaps I felt like a disappointed cinema-goer. Having paid for my ticket, I'd be buggered if I was going to walk out the film. If I couldn't have less, I would make do with more. The narrator will soon discover to his cost that in this particular carriage, it's buggered if you do, buggered if you don't. The Don snaps out of his fugue and explains that he sometimes has these lapses, thoughts jamming and sparking between lobes, before continuing. However, such intervals recur with increasing frequency, chopping us back from Dan and Carol to the Don and the narrator in the train carriage, building to a sense of climax as the Don details Carol's increasingly masculine interests, a taste for male companionship in the pub, taking driving lessons and growing a penis. The Don's asides become increasingly malevolent as he stops the narrator from leaving, makes a series of swipes at Jews and intellectuals and shows a particular fascination with authors who suffered agonies on the toilet, Nietzsche and Gogol, as well as those who rumoured to have lost some or all of their penis, Henry James, Henry James or Mikhail Bakunin. The Don also asserts authority over the control of the story, insisting on his right to be both pro and antagonist. We have a moment where the very text seems to wrestle with itself, the two narrators fighting for dominance, and us, the reader, left to decide where our allegiance lies. If you don't watch it, some purely local story, some commuting tale will mow you down, cleave you in two, finally separate your dialogue from your characterization. So don't try it. Try what? Try and downgrade me in this fashion. It's unseemly, it's cheap. My reality shouldn't be tipped into a plastic laundry basket and flogged off in this manner. I reserve my right to centrality, to be the pro as well as the antagonist. The Don's voice picked up speed with the train. He was managing, once again, to marginalise me. What begins as sounding like a nasty shaggy dog story becomes more and more unpleasant, and while the narrator doesn't know what he's in for, the Don knows all too well what comes after climbing on board. For as it turns out, the man the narrator took for a slightly faggoty, fussy, middle-aged Don is in fact Carol, who after raping and murdering Dan and framing his self-help sponsor, Dave Two, has since transformed into this stagnated, nasty old man. Not only has Carol, the Don, insisted on being pro and antagonist, but also narrator and subject, and now is jamming and sparking between the distances of detached observation and lived experience. The Don's desire for total submission casts an unpleasant light on the controlling relationship between author and reader. A relationship which reaches its sinister peak when the Don, as foreshadowed, rapes the narrator. This being the climax he-she has been building towards. However, it becomes off rather prematurely and in more ways than the obvious, forced. For one thing, it's all over as soon as it started, the climax building to a decidedly quick finish. For another, throughout the attack, the narrator is noting with some embarrassment the rapist's shortcomings, both physical and oratorical. This anticlimax is only the latest evidence of subpar storytelling. To match Dan's all-too-predictable development problems and Carol's automatic becoming a rapist since she has a penis, there is a backdrop of brilliantly not-brilliant clues. There is the train drawing to a close in a field of rape, over which looms Didcot Tower, seeming like an Easter Island god bearing evidence of a sterile, unproductive culture. There is Beverly having her way with Carol on a pile of Dan's work shirts, the Don's hands in his lap forming a fleshly cup, and perhaps best of all, Carol's purchase of a cockatiel, then later a minor bird, famous for their mimicry of proximate behaviours. 
This is fun being had at the expense of tricks of slight fiction. Subtler clues abound also. That spy's head for alcohol that Carol gets, or says she gets, as she drinks with others. She gets cleverer. An early hint of her impossible claim to be both protagonist and narrator, as well as a reflection of how we readers behave, walking through scenes with spy's heads on. This literary train-spotting approach can, of course, lead to tinfoil hats and the body-odor shame of mystifying the straightforward. However, despite Self's claims that he chucks in literary references for the hell of it and just to annoy literary critics, I want to mention a couple that must have a bit more to them than that. For a while, I couldn't understand why A Whiter Shade of Pale was Carol's go-to wank track, other than the fact of it oozing out of the speakers had a spermy sort of waft and the title sounded as thin as Carol and her husband's characters. However, it could be a vehicle for a Chaucerian nod. The Miller's Tale mentioned in the song is from Canterbury Tales, a typically bawdy tale of cuckoldry, quim-grabbing and bum-kissing, but perhaps more importantly, a tale told in order to enthrall and disgust. Robin the Miller quites his tale, meaning to outdo the last person who spoke. Among other literary references, Cock opens with a canto from Byron's Don Juan. I won't describe, that is, if I can help description. And I won't reflect, that is, if I can stave off thought, which as a whelp clings to its teat, sticks to me through the abyss of this odd labyrinth, or as the kelp holds by the rock, or as a lover's kiss drains its first draught of lips. But as I said, I won't philosophise and will be read. The labyrinth works nicely to set up for us the story entitled Bull, but the final declaration to not philosophise seems most pertinent to Cock. A warning to not betray your own perceptions with jargon, detachment, or one-size-fits-all morality. To stave off philosophy would be something like telling the truth of life, for warts and all. And that which is true to life, to be mistaken at one's cost with naturalism, tends to be the fiction that is most lasting, and that will indeed be read. It brings to mind what Edward Rand said of the enduring appeal of Ovid. After all our attempts at analysis, Ovid's spirit eludes us. If we call him this or that, he quickly performs a metamorphosis and shows another face. He loves shadings, the slanting intermediates in Meredith's phrase, the twilights of nature and of the mind. Speaking of Ovid, let's address metamorphoses in general. Carol's late set hermaphroditism is not the only transformation in Cock. Here's a passage on Dan's drinking. With Dan, it was a comprehensive metamorphosis, as if he had forgotten his own self entirely and taken on a distinct new personal history. Of course, a chronic sot in his cups has no memory beyond the previous two or three minutes of staggering and altercating. He's a short-lived thing, a May bug, born to live, grow, propagate and then succumb in the next spring shower. Despite the sordid source of Dan's metamorphosis with its boringly blatant lineage, his father, we discover, had a wet brain, the transformations he undergoes drunk are much more depressing and unpredictable than Carol growing a willy. This is another way that self shows up the simplistic idea that as women have become gradually more masculine, men have gradually become more feminine, by showing, as he mentions in his, in his quote in Alice in Wonderland, that abrupt transmogrifications are common and essential to human experience. His flat characters, obeying the gender dogma, are unnerved by ambiguity. This is damned during a nightmare. And as he tossed, he was subject to waking dreams in which odd sexual chimeras Women with testicles instead of eyes and men with vaginal ears stood about unconcerned in a delusional lounge bar. This is similar to a moment in which Carol, during another Wonderland nod, wakes up screaming from a dream in which her body was on a much larger scale and little men in hard hats were busying around her crotch. Abrupt transformations ab abound. In Bull, it seems too apt to be an error that the protagonist's vehicle mysteriously changes from a Mini Cooper into a Beetle. Then there are the words themselves. 
M. Hunter Hayes points out that petty more for Carol means an orgasm, while for Bull it is a loss of self. Hayes goes on to say, Most significantly, frond denotes Carol's nascent penis and the plaster in Alan Margulies' office. The term functions as an object correlative for the emotional trauma Carol and Bull face in their genital anomalies. In his review, Tom Shon, him again on better form here, notes that such universal joint adjectives and all-purpose nouns, which flip so easily between human and inhuman, micro and macrocosm, are the real cross-dressers in Cock and Bull. When the Don punctuates his goading of the narrator with wooden Jew, we are hearing a colloquial verbalisation whilst also reading the words wooden Jew. In a story interested in fundamental identity aspects being rendered as leaden characterizations, this cannot fail to operate as a metamorphosis in real time as we read. Natasha Walter is way off when she says it is in the language, the nuts and bolts of his prose, that self has most clearly lost control. In fact, it is rare to read something that concentrates so consistently and thoroughly on the nuts and bolts. Having, via quotation admittedly, sworn not to philosophise, Cock and Bull also read like the author has done just that, confronting bias and jargon and treating the presumed authority of simplified gender roles in both sociopolitical jargon and narrative technique with profound disrespect. That it does so laughingly and by taking both at their word only exposes those who cannot see a joke when it is at their expense. Those critics who despair that Carol is without awareness of cliché or irony say so without awareness of cliché or irony and need to question whether this is not the first time they have sat around listening to a load of cock and bull. Why then, to come back to our opening sentence, does Carol feel like less of a woman? Because Dan supplies the counter-stereotype and is a cliché of the womanish. In accordance with the simplistic swapping of the requisite parts, Carol becomes the man to fill the void Dan left. It's a game of musical genitals. But instead of becoming a more complex person, she simply stagnates. And as her transformation progresses, she rots into the ghastly anti-Semitic Don, a refuse pile of genuinely and stereotypically toxic masculinity. Cock is subtitled a novelette, which which at first seems a bit of an affectation. Look up novelette in a creative writing support pack and you'll see it placed in an attractive graphic alongside novella and the short story and perhaps flash fiction. Some people even hazard a word count as marking the distinction. Novellas 4,000 to 6,000, novelettes occupying the previously uncovered 2,000 to 4,000 bracket. But this is nonsense. The term novelette is derogative and mocking. It means a short and inferior novel of banal and overly sentimental content. The fact that the word is also a straightforwardly feminised version of its opposite makes it the perfect subtitle for self-story. Just like Carol, and presumably her minor bird, Cock the Novelette has mimicked its opposite number. Be on the lookout, if this podcast does convince you to pick up a copy of the book, for similar little details. A masonette here, a stoulette there. In contrast, Bull is subtitled a farce. Farce because unlike Carol, who wills her penis into being, subconsciously or otherwise, then mans the narrative, Bull receives his vagina from nowhere. He's an ordinary character thrust into an extraordinary situation. Unlike the crushed, submissive housewife Carol or the grotesque rapist Carol, Bull is a rugby player but not a stereotype. While he looks like a hail-fellow-well-met type, evocative of bone-crushing bonhomie and stupid drinking games, he is in fact shown to have a sensitive disposition, firm journalistic ideals or at least taste, and in strongest contrast to the characters in Cock, a facility for introspection. He has an obscure horror at the wound on on the back of his leg, which he thinks or hopes is a burn, and is unable to tell whether it is on or in him. After visiting his doctor, we have the lines, The abnormal becomes normal through its inclusion in the worlds of others. Exclude it, and it begins to take on a penumbra of sinister otherness. Would this were the case for Bull?
For him, his nightmare is made only more sinister through its inclusion in the world of others. Like other stooges of farce, he is truly a prisoner in an unsympathetic, frequently painful world. In this respect, he's the most Kafka-like character in the book, and it's no wonder that the opening line of Ball tells us, in familiar fashion, that the heavyset young man awoke one morning to find... Like Philip Roth, in the breast and Kafka before him, Self here demonstrates not the, not the funny side of the horrible, but the horror in the comic, quite literally in the case of Bull, who has a hatred of low entertainment. A former enthusiastic sports journalist, Bull has recently been reassigned to the light entertainment section of the magazine Get Out. Bull's copy would regularly come back from the editor with all but the most straightforward of statements ruthlessly excised. Bull felt something like a prisoner on a chain gang, forced to dig holes and then fill them in again, without purpose, without reason. And as his inability to write about it increased, so did Bull's loathing for all forms of cabaret, stand-up comedy, fringe theatre, and other small audience entertainments. It is a comedian, Raza Rob, famed for his fanny gags that provides the supposed cause of Bull's metamorphosis. And if Raza Rob's sub-Bernard Manning routines weren't bad enough on their own, even worse is the faddest determination of his colleagues to mount a revisionist critique into his one-liners about vaginas. They have nothing to do with women. Raza is cutting the archetypal cunt out of the woman and displaying it for the world to see and appreciate that it's just a cipher, an empty category on which people project their own distorted attitudes. After all, what's a hole once one removes it from the ground? She was quoting the article again, Bull realised. I said earlier that the Byron quote at the start of Cock seems to foreshadow Bull. In mentioning the labyrinth, we are made to think of Minos and the Minotaur. Byron, incidentally, also wrote an epigram on John Bull. A four-line poem which reads, The world is a bundle of hay, mankind are the asses who pull. Each tugs it a different way, and the greatest of all is John Bull. But it is another mythical cow that Bull most closely resembles, and appropriately it is a character featured in the Metamorphoses. Io, who is pursued by Zeus, or Jove in the Latinate Ovid, raped and then metamorphosed into a bull to allow Zeus to escape the inquisition of his wife, Juno. A similar abuse of power is to befall Bull, but not an abuse of religious power. Now medicine is the modern religion, and doctors are our shaman, possessed of arcane knowledge and imbued with the necessary wisdom and commensurate powers to decoct auguries and then cast out the evil spirits that plague us. Whether they be spirits that infest the body, or worse, spirits that infest the mind. But once one has abandoned the idea of seeking assistance from a doctor, one has instantly entered a twilight zone, a crepuscular territory, where the anatomy and its corruption through disease become fantastical and phantasmagoric. Time to meet Dr. Margulies, or Margulies, a charming, attractive and adulterous doctor with a young family. Great bit of naming, not only someone who will indeed Margulies, but also derive from the French for swindler. A lot of Self's writing in both fiction and non-fiction has taken as its subject medical malpractice, and Margulies, or Margulies, is one of his most blatant abusers of power. Now might be a good moment to hark back to Cock and mention Dave too, another abuser of power, but this time a practitioner of pseudoscience rather than medicine. Dave too, whose real name is Hobbes, presents a nasty synthesis of David Hume and Thomas Hobbes, a parasitic voyeur and would-be moral double-glazing salesman, an ex-pisshead who has discovered the only cure for dipsomania is religiomania. He has worked his way up the Alcoholics Anonymous ranks and now coaches recovering addicts where he is in his element, hearing versions from one and all. These he held on to as if they were long threads, trailing from barely stitched emotional wounds. Dave Two waited, waited to tug. To read the justice of Dave Two's comeuppance and the brilliance of his rationalisation of it, I implore you to read the book. But Dave Two, as his name implies, is a secondary character in Cock, Margulies, 
on the other hand, is uncomfortably close to being both pro and antagonist. After Bull makes an appointment with him and Margulies first sets his eyes on Bull's knee vagina, instead of telling his patient the truth, he decides to cover it up. What follows is his quite brief moral questioning of himself as to what to do next, though we can intuit from the tone of the story which way it's heading. Incidentally, during this period, Margulies leaps through a book of bodily abnormalities and comes across what could be the most direct link to Cock, a picture of a young, not unattractive woman with a clitoris the size of a parsnip. Whether or not this is Carol is unclear, but she is described as pinched and parochial. Margulies' pursuit of Bull is structured like a distorted romance novel. Their first encounter takes place in a chapter called First Impressions, the original title for Pride and Prejudice, and sure enough, later comes Seduction. The, ext- the extract from Tennyson's Maud that serves as an epigraph to the novel is sure to provoke a sense of vagophobia. I hate the dreadful hollow behind the little wood. Its lips in the field above are dabbled with blood-red heath. Its red-ribbed ledges drip with a silent horror of blood, an echo there, whatever is aster, answers death. But the heroic couplets, which are a product of Tennyson's narrator, an unhinged and obsessive suitor, match the chorus of approval that Margulies has in his head, even when he deceives his wife and patient. Where Cock playfully challenged anyone who claimed to be in control of the narrative, Bull shows us at a distance the same controlling and exploitative relationship. Margulies isn't the narrator, but he might as well be controlling Bull, who by necessity depends on him to be healed. Instead, Margulies has a sexual affair with Bull, impregnates him, then then abandons him, leaving his patient suicidal. If Bull, as a counterpart to Cock, isn't exactly tender, it is at least more pitying. Perhaps that's because Carol's not exactly dismayed with her metamorphosis, whereas Bull looks in the pink and sees red. None of us, I assume, have experienced the manifestation of a femifestation on the back of our legs, but it is a universal phenomenon to mark with despair the progress of this wart or that belly. We might not be able to feel what Bull feels, nervously stroking the back of his knee, but we know exactly where he's coming from. According to Christopher Hitchens, the plain fact is that the physical structure of a human being is a joke in itself, a flat, crude, unanswerable disproof of any nonsense about intelligent design. The reproductive and eliminating functions, the closeness of which is the origin of all obscenity, were obviously wired together in hell by some subcommittee that was giggling cruelly as it went about its work. Think they'll wear this? Well, they're going to have to. One of the ways Will Self shows compassion, if not for his characters, then at least for his fellow man, is, paradoxical as it sounds, in his bottomless disgust for them. All Will Self characters are repulsive, even the hot ones. His stories are jam-packed with gammon-faced mutants and green-haired vampires, lavish monsters. Sometimes he makes you crave for a more ordinarily repulsive piece of shit just for a breath of fresh air. This is a description of the Don. His face had that wire-biting-into-Edam look of a man grown old with little physical exertion and no physical danger, save for the mineral drip-drip-drip of sherry, Madeira and claret dissipation. But the effect is so widespread it becomes democracy by disgust, and what could be more human than that? Nabokov remarked that if you want to humble your villain, don't kill him off, just show him picking his nose. Conversely, self will endear you to his characters by showing them picking their arse. Our last ray of light from Tom Shon, complaining that Self overdoes it in this department. That's the problem with Rococo disgust. Take the disgust away and you turn it into Barbara Cartland. But that is impossible when disgust is the whole point. This is anathema to modern-day body worshippers, who do themselves exactly the wrong inflicted upon Carol and attempted by Dave too, the negation of the individual in favour of the state, or in favour of the body. 
The female body is incredible, predatory Beverly breathes at Carol, using her enthusiasm for it as a rope with which to pull herself closer. Carol wants to go along with this, but finds herself prey to old-fashioned thoughts about keeping certain things hidden, eventually abandoning a well-woman meeting at a demonstration of live yoghurt being applied to an inflamed pudenda. The failures of narrative that self-exposes are comparable to the failures of the body. Both are the packaging, not the product. Plot holes, we've all got them. It's no surprise that the people with the keenest sense of black comedy about the shortcomings of the body are the most betrayed, the sick or the dying. They who see their packaging for what they are, the wrong trousers, and with garrulous laughter reassert some of the Nabokovian authority and stroll down their galleys with a sense of humour. The modern worship of the body renders the denim on a bull somewhat old-fashioned. Instead of killing himself, he flees to San Francisco, apparently gives birth, and then quietly raises his child in Wales, where cock began, keeping the secret of his knee under wraps. Bull is made a pariah by his abnormality, rejected by a society not wanting to rock the boat, in which, as M. Hunter Hayes says, homogeneity is an illusion which is built and maintained by a communal acquiescence. Would Bull flee the country today? Of course not. There he is, gazing bravely out from under a lifestyle section, under the headline, My Leg Vagina and Me. Placing too much faith in these untrustworthy, untrustworthy machines we walk around in can't end well. And it's much more bracing, not to mention more realistic, to laugh at their shortcomings. Disgust creates a comic foundation from which self can build imagery that can amuse and be meaningful at the same time. How about this from Bull, reflecting on his genital hierarchies after his lovemaking session with Alan Margulies? True, when he had made love with Alan, there had been a cock-rubbing aspect to the whole thing, but it was purely secondary to the fact of penetration. It was as if his penis had gracefully stepped aside, like a retiring diva introducing her successor to the adoring audience at La Scala. Together they sang one final aria before the older woman bowed out. The problem of both stories in Cock and Bull is desire. After having his fears confirmed at last that yes, it is a vagina on the back of his knee, we have the following two sentences, and notice how comically the problem of desire swoops in like a lech. The big ginger man knelt moaning on the carpet. A bubbling, keening sound came unbidden from the corners of his not unsensual mouth. The unpredictability of desire, which, in the gods, is what creates so many of the problems in Ovid, is one of the elements of life that is so perilously, perilously ignored by creative writing and sociological jargon alike. The principles of either, when followed through, don't much resemble life. Life, as self writes in Cock and Bull, with its preposterously long odds against anything happening at all. And anyway, ex post facto, we will incontinently impose some tawdry motif on these senseless experiences and muddled ideas. All too often nowadays, the motifs are crass, merely cinematic. Throughout Cock and Bull, self's characters have atavistic impulses of one kind or another, as if they are trying to undo some kind of block. Carol feels it in conflict with her student radicalism, a feeling that some things should be left in the dark. Bull, whose thoughts are like ageing arthritic sportsmen, is incapable of articulating his desire for a colleague. Naomi, Alan Margulies' wife, sees her baby as a clever little homunculus, recalling an earlier quotation from T.S. Eliot's Sweeney Agonistes. A gesture of orangutan rises from the sheets in steam. Don Quixote, in a similar atavistic frame of mind, laments... In that time, amorous concepts were recited from the soul simply and directly, in the same way and manner that the soul conceived them, without looking for artificial and devious words to enclose them. But this is a world of plunder and prey, and those in power exploit the weak. 
Modern dogma and new shaman have replaced those of the Dark Ages, and worst of all, this is no hostile takeover. We are compliant in our acceptance of jargon and have privileged the body over the parts more capable of originality. It's worth remembering that the decline of religion coincided with the rise of the novel. And while this book might describe itself as a load of cock and bull, it makes a good case for clinging, like a whelp to the teat, to that which is like life, and ditching the merely cinematic. Later in Maud, Tennyson writes, We are puppets, man in his pride, and beauty fair in her flower. Do we move ourselves, or are moved by an unseen hand at a game, that pushes us off from the board, and others ever succeed? Ah, yet we cannot be kind to each other here for an hour. We whisper and hint and chuckle, and grin at a brother's shame. However we brave it out, we men are a little breed. Thank you for listening to A Read This. Um, If you've enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on iTunes or whatever podcast um, app you use. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at A Read This. And you can drop us an email to leave us any fond reviews or abuse, outrage or despair at eareadthis at gmail.com. Next week, we'll be discussing Hunter S. Thompson's Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Until then, happy reading.